So the simplest way to understand the heroin market is that it is hemispheric, not global. That is, most heroin consumed in the United States for the last fairly num number of years now has been produced in the Western Hemisphere. What happened in 2013-14 is fentanyl started adulterating heroin. And fentanyl is way more potent, way more dangerous, way more overdoses. So you get this really dramatic increase. Hello, and welcome to the History of Drugs in Society, where we explore the history of different substances and how we've lived alongside and interacted with them. I'm your host, Eugene Leventhal. In this bonus episode, I interview John Calkins, who is a university professor of operations research and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University's Heinz College. Our interview focuses on fentanyl in the United States, looking at both the history and current state of the market. We talk about the impacts of COVID-19 on fentanyl markets, what evidence there has been of fentanyl being mixed with other drugs, and what a term like morphine equivalent dose means and why it's important to know. We also touch on safe supply, regional and international trends in synthetic opioid usage, and where data on overdoses comes from in the first place. The interview starts off with John introducing himself. Sure, John Calkins, I'm Professor of Operations, Search and Public Policy at Carnegie Mellon's Heinz College, and I'm also affiliated with Rand's Drug Policy Research Center. And to start the discussion, uh, I, I want to focus in on the report that you were a co-author of, The Future of Fentanyl and Other Synthetic Opioids, uh, and specifically looking to some of the beginnings of the emergence of fentanyl in the U.S. Do you mind just providing a rough background on the role that fentanyl has played in the U.S. drug markets prior to its most recent instance? I guess the way to think about this is that fentanyl as a synthetic opioid has the potential to be way more, quote unquote, cost effective than heroin, which is derived from the poppy plant. At present, it costs much less per kilogram than heroin, and it is more potent in the sense that it takes a smaller number of milligrams to produce the same uh, stimulation of the mu opioid receptor. So for a very long time, observers who paid attention to these things kind of wondered, well, why, why wouldn't the market switch over. But from heroin wholesalers' perspective, fentanyl seems to offer a lower cost of raw materials, if, if you will. So, so the economic conditions have been right for fentanyl to come in and take a market share away from, from heroin for a while. And there have been, depending on how you count, uh, four or so significant incidents in the United States where it seemed to start to go down that path but didn't continue. Um, the first was in, say, 1979 in California. Uh, the, um, it, it, and it was China White and caused uh, quite a few deaths. And that one receded for reasons we don't fully understand. But by the mid-80s, it had basically disappeared and it never took over the market. Um, then there were a couple of, of small episodes, one even based in Pittsburgh, that were cut short basically by the chemist who was making it being arrested. And then the largest of these four was 2005 and six, when there was a lab connected to a Mexican drug trafficking organization, so connected to a distribution network that produced a fair amount uh, and it caused a, a very noticeable spike in deaths, 
but the DEA working with Mexican law enforcement figured out where the lab was and shut it down. And even though that was more than just a chemist, it was still one isolated point of production and so it could be shut down. And now it's it's not like that. Now we have, as far as we understand it, um, multiple producers in primarily in China where we have essentially zero ability to intervene in a law enforcement way. As you alluded to, it's fair to say that across all of these initial instances, the sources all seem to be domestic and isolated. Well, three of the four, I am honestly, the California China white one, we know very little about. I presume it was domestic. Two others were definitely domestic. And then that 2005, six one was, uh, was actually in Mexico, but the distribution was in the United States. And do you know if for the 2006 one, was there any reason to believe that there might already have been kind of the, the precursor connection with China or for, for what we know, did it seem to purely be isolated in Mexico? Um, my, I, I, know, I know no concrete evidence that it was connected to China. And I am quite sure that at the time, China was not discussed as an important part of it, which may be just ignorance, but, but I don't think that there's reason to presume that it was. Got it. And then during this general time period before 2013, if looking internationally, were there any other examples of countries where fentanyl was starting to come up in opioid markets? So at this point, it's really useful to distinguish purely black market fentanyl, which is produced by some illegal chemist, from the version of pharmaceutical fentanyl. Um, which could sometimes be in, say, patches, uh, pain relief patches. There have been many countries that at one time or another had some diversion of the pharmaceutical fentanyl, but um, the black market fentanyl really wasn't very common with the very odd and singular exception of Estonia, which in 2001-2, developed a, a fentanyl market. They had had a heroin market, hadn't been there very long, but then when the Taliban banned poppy production in Afghanistan and created a shortage, Estonia's heroin market dried up and they switched to fentanyl that as far as we understand it, was sourced through Russia until very recently. And also odd, is it just across the Gulf of Finland, Finland's heroin supply also dried up and there the heroin is replaced by buprenorphine. And both of those two countries, heroin markets did not rebound when heroin supplies became more generally available elsewhere. Whereas if you took France, for instance, they might've had um, a reduction in availability of heroin which would manifest like in lower purity or higher prices, but the heroin market just bounced back. Estonia and Finland are quite interesting examples because uh, when their heroin supply got squeezed, it bounced to a substitute. And in Estonia's case, it happened to bounce to fentanyl. And focusing on the the disruption in the market that happened due to the the changes under the Taliban in 2001, were there any other global effects seen uh, that are very notable due to that disruption in the market? Yeah, no, I, I think that 
Back up. So the simplest way to understand the heroin market is that it is hemispheric, not global. That is, most heroin consumed in the United States for the last fairly num number of years now has been produced in the Western Hemisphere. And then Afghanistan, which is by far the world's biggest producer of illegal opioids. Afghanistan's supply basically goes to the Eastern Hemisphere. So the Afghan event was felt in one way or another by uh, uh, illegal markets for opioids in many countries in the Eastern Hemisphere. In most places, what happened would just be there was less supply and that, and that typically manifests in the form of lower purity. And that persisted for a while and then it came back. And it, the reduction was less abrupt or severe than one might have thought. And we conjecture that's because apparently there were there was a lot of inventory out there. So losing a year of production um, didn't shock the market as much as it would have had there not been inventory. In fact, one of the uh, popular hypotheses is that it's not that the Taliban suddenly became interested in protecting the health of heroin users and Paris or Estonia, but rather that they were sitting on uh, big stockpiles of uh, opium gum that had relatively low value when there was a surplus. And they thought they could do a win-win. They could uh, sort of extort some drug control money from the international community while simultaneously cutting off new production of this commodity that they were sitting on the world's biggest warehouse full. Well, I don't mean literally warehouse, but the largest inventory. And so they, you know, sort of very cleverly got got paid for creating an artificial scarcity, which bumped up the value of the stuff they had in stockpile, and then were able to send down the pipeline. So, so that's um, a theory about why the reduction in availability that year was less uh, pointed than one might have expected if there hadn't been a bunch of inventory someplace. And then coming back to the U.S. overall, uh, and as you mentioned earlier, the, the current uh, round of or dealing with fentanyl kind of started in, back up in 2013. And overall, that was part of a greater opioid issue that the country was having. Do you mind just briefly uh, alluding to kind of the, the three waves and where fentanyl fit into this? Oh, not at all, because it's just so crucially important. So um, there was a heroin epidemic in the late 60s, and that plateaued in the early 70s with like the disruption of the Turkish production and the French connection and so on. And from, say, 1975 to 1995, the opioid problem in the United States was quite stable, really. There was even jargon about there's an aging cohort of heroin users. But then that stability was shattered in the mid to late 1990s from a completely different direction, from prescription opioids. And uh, the simple version of the story is that up until that time, essentially every country around the world said, yikes, these opioids, they're super addictive. Even though they're great at killing pain, let's only use them for acute pain. 
because if you're only taking them for three days or seven days, you're not going to get addicted. Uh, for terminal patients, you're going to die in three months anyhow. We don't worry if you get dependent. Uh, and for cancer pain. But in the mid to late 1990s, the country managed to convince itself that opioids medically provided are not that addictive, even if they're used long-term and daily. And that basically was wrong, uh, wrong in a big way. But we started to prescribe opioids to treat chronic pain. So people were taking powerful opioids every day for a year or two years at a time. And you know, perhaps not surprisingly, this created millions of people with opioid use disorder and a lot of overdose. So that's kind of the first wave. The second wave is not a separate phenomenon. That's one of the things that's a little misleading about the terminology, even though everybody uses it. Rather, what, what happened is that over time, when people have opioid use disorder, some of them sort of lose control of their life, they might lose their job, and they quote unquote trade down to black market opioids, where you can purchase three or four times as many morphine milligram equivalent dose per dollar as one could with the pharmaceutical opioids. And at the time, heroin was absolutely the dominant black market opioid, so you had a big increase in heroin deaths. But this wasn't primarily people who had never used a drug before suddenly starting to use heroin. It was mostly people who had already been misusing prescription opioids. But the death rate went up because when you're buying on the black market, it's a less predictable dose. And that was maybe like 2010, roughly. Um, then what happened in 2013-14 is fentanyl started adulterating heroin. And fentanyl is way more potent, way more dangerous, way more overdoses. So you get this really dramatic increase, which was not an increase in use at all. It wasn't that we suddenly had more people with opioid use disorder. It's the same pool of people who are now dying at a higher rate, and specifically in the Midwest and Northeast. Fentanyl is still not really nationwide. So those would be sort of the three waves, but they look like three waves if you're looking at people who die and ask what chemical is in their body at the time. But when somebody has fentanyl in their body when they die in 2020, it's very possible that they became dependent on prescription opioids in 2005, and they started using black market heroin in 2010, but they survived until 2020. And then when they died, it was fentanyl that was in their body. But, it, but it's not as if their entire drug use career was a fentanyl use career. It's just fentanyl was the drug that was in their body when they died. You alluded to this before, but would you mind discussing how different the source of fentanyl was once it started reemerging in this 2013 timeframe? Oh, yeah. As far as we know, it's primarily produced in China or it is perhaps produced in Mexico with uh, chemicals that come from China. But it is a synthetic at this point, so it can be produced anywhere somebody has the facilities, which are not necessarily super complicated, um, and access to the precursors. So I think what's in some respects maybe even more important than it's coming from China at this point is that it is not tied to any place that has peasants farming 
puppies, which was the case for heroin. And aside from the the changing nature of the the source of the substance itself, the distribution channel started changing a little bit as well uh, due to technology around this time. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And in ways that we definitely do not uh, understand completely yet or their implications. So we know very well the distribution mechanism for old-fashioned heroin. It's in some respects very similar to for cocaine, which is uh, the drugs passed hand-to-hand through multiple layers of a distribution chain with all of the players being professional criminals down to the very bottom where the retailer might be a user dealer, a term that used to be used as a juggler. Uh, and there were uh, multiple layers in this chain because the quote-unquote kingpins wanted to be insulated from law enforcement being able to work its way up the chain by starting with the, the, the users or the, or the jugglers. And this, uh, this approach led to very big price increases at every step along the way, and it uh, supported a lot of violence because you know, it was sort of armed people with guns conducting transactions that were not subject to the universal commercial code. If they had a dispute, somebody didn't pay or the product wasn't good, they couldn't take that to small claims court or even big claims court and have it adjudicated. So it was a, it was a criminal activity with uh, guns and violence. What definitely happens some with fentanyl is that the distribution is uh, sort of like by Amazon. There's a website and you can purchase on the website and have the order fulfilled by package delivery. It may not be literally Amazon, it could be FedEx, UPS, or, or the US mail. Some of the websites are actually in the open web, but a lot of the websites are in the dark web. You can pay with Bitcoin. And this is in part because fentanyl is so potent. So if you mail a pound package, you're mailing a lot. It's in part just the technologies are available now and they didn't used to. We don't know what proportion of all fentanyl consumed by people in the United States goes through this internet method. There is also some that's distributed by more conventional trafficking organizations. We also don't know the trend. Um, It seems logical that more over time should be distributed over the internet because it is potentially a much cheaper way to distribute and frankly safer for the criminal, for that matter, for society. There's not even a really good explanation of why that alternative internet-based mechanism of distribution shouldn't work for cocaine and methamphetamine. So some people are thinking that give it 10 or 15 years and those drugs will start to be distributed that way, which would be a very big change, downward pressure on price, but on the positive side, potentially less violence associated with the trade. So like fentanyl is distributed in this innovative way but that innovative way, it's not clear it's only fentanyl that can be distributed. That way. And for that matter, there are many dark web sites that distribute a variety of new psychoactive substances and other drugs too. But, but that existing studied dark web world 
is mostly B to C. And the best estimates are it's less than half a percent of total sales. Well, we don't know whether it'll happen. If it does, it'll be a very big change is if B2B, business to business, transactions for cocaine, crack, heroin, methamphetamine, follow fentanyl into this internet pathway. So something to watch. And is there a sense as of now in terms of how much of the the distribution side in terms of who's actually shipping this is covered by drug trafficking organizations versus just more enterprising individuals who want to take a stab at it? No, nobody has hard data on it. All we have are speculations. And even, you know, what the you, you set that up as a binary and you know, that's probably blurrier than that anyhow. I mean, if you're distributing fentanyl, you're a criminal. So um, but I understand the the gist of your comment is sort of are you part of a group and a group that is armed and violent? Or are you an individual operating by stealth? Um, and uh, I, we, we do not know. It's an excellent question. And uh, quite a lot hinges on, on how that will play out over time. And before digging deeper with a couple questions on fentanyl, I actually want to cover a couple of things more about uh, data and what underlies some of the numbers that people might hear in general. So one of the terms that you mentioned before was morphine equivalent dose. And it, it seems to be a very important term, especially if you hear of something, uh, oh, fentanyl is X times stronger than something else. Would you mind just adding a little color about what does morphine equivalent dose mean and how is it used in those comparisons? Yeah, it's a great question. So all opioids are in the same family. They all operate on the same neuroreceptors but some of them activate those receptors more efficiently, for lack of a better word, than others, so that it takes a smaller number of milligrams of that a more potent one to achieve the same effect in the, in the user. And so originally it was, was doctors trying to figure out how to come up with equivalent doses for pain management of different opioid medicines within the family of opioids, who said, well, let's convert everything into the morphine equivalent. So heroin is customarily thought of as two to five times as potent as morphine, which means that one gram of heroin has the same analgesic effect as two to five grams of morphine. And on that scale, fentanyl is like off the charts. It's up there at like 50 to 100, uh, whereas heroin is two to five. And codeine would be less than one. And then some analogs such as carfentanil can even go higher on that scale. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a very useful thing. And, and we do want to pay attention to those things because if you say, hey, we seized a kilogram of fentanyl. Somebody might say, what's the big deal? We seize multiple kilograms of drugs all the time. But, but a kilogram of fentanyl is equivalent to um, many tens of kilograms of heroin. It's not completely perfect because it's the, the conversion ratios came from assessing analgesic properties, which is not exactly the same as the hedonic effect. And they do have different durations of action. So fentanyl uh, is shorter acting than heroin. So in a way, 
um, if you switch from heroin to fentanyl, you may well end up using more times per day, which has its own effects in terms of more injections and risk of spreading bloodborne diseases. So I don't want to make it sound like just like there are there are four quarts in a gallon. It's not quite that kind of conversion that's just a units conversion, but it's way better to adjust for potency than to ignore it and just count a gram of fentanyl as the same as a gram of heroin. And can you tell us what you mean by analgesic versus hedonic? I, I see. So, well, analgesic, I really did mean in the sort of technical terminology of pain, um, uh, uh, ability to suppress pain. So most of these tables were invented within the medical system to address medical doctors treating pain, trying to figure out how much to give. Hedonic, I'm using fairly informally there to just say people who are purchasing the substances um, outside the medical system are usually looking for either euphoria or staving off of withdrawal. And I'm just allowing for the possibility that the ratios in terms of euphoria or uh, fending off withdrawal may not be the same as the ratios for pain relief. Buprenorphine would be an example of that where they're not um, the same. And one of the aspirations of uh, medical science now is to try to decouple the suppression of breathing from the alleviation of pain. We're trying to invent molecules that will suppress pain without suppressing breathing to reduce the overdose risk. So I am not an expert on pharmacodynamics and pharmacokinetics and so on. But, um, the caution was just that these equivalency tables were invented by people treating pain. And from the user in the black market side, their notion of equivalency might be different. There's actually a divided literature on the extent to which users like or dislike fentanyl. There are ethnographic studies that say the users hate fentanyl and they only use it begrudgingly. And there are others that say, no, they, they love fentanyl. It's stronger. And, there's yet a third theory um, that a friend of mine puts forward, which I, I quite like, which is that people just get used to something and they like the thing they're used to. And if you ask them to change, they don't necessarily like to change, but a year later, they'll have gotten used to the new thing. Um, that, I, I, any of those seem, seem plausible to me. And coming back to uh, to some of the uh, some of the basics, when it comes to overall data on overdose and drug markets, where does that come from? <laughs> well, uh, a lot of creativity and patching things together. There's no question. So overdoses are one of the best measured things, and that's part of why they are discussed so prominently. It's not that they're measured. Perfectly. So Christopher Bream, I think is the way you pronounce his name, uh, has a super widely cited article where he says, hey, the, the number of um, fentanyl deaths may be like 25% higher than people realize because uh, there are instances in which the labs are testing for it or, and we have these overdoses where they're recorded as substance unknown. So it's not like even the deaths are perfect, let alone the ambulance calls. But when there's a death, there's a body. And when there's an ambulance call, there's a record in somebody's 911. So those get recorded pretty well. And in a way, uh, it's a bit of a problem because 
in some respects, what you'd rather know is the number of people with opioid use disorder. And as I alluded to earlier, when fentanyl came along, we started to get a lot more deaths per person year with opioid use disorder. So there was this surge in deaths and sometimes people's first reaction was, oh my goodness, there must be a surge in use or dependent use. And it's not clear that happened at all. It, it may just be that that same group of people are, are dying at a higher rate. But there are other things. So we can monitor prices in markets because of undercover purchases. There's wastewater monitoring, which has become increasingly common. There, of course, are surveys of household population and high school population that tend to be really poor for getting at uh, dependent opioid use. They're a little bit better for misuse of prescription opioids. But in olden times, we had systems like um, collecting urine samples from random samples of people, uh, arrestees in booking facilities. So there are bits and pieces uh, increasingly for things like uh, web transactions or web crawlers that run around automatically paying attention to what's being offered for sale. But it's, uh, it's very much like a jigsaw puzzle where you only have about 20% of the pieces. And you, you mentioned this in terms of some of the challenges with toxicology. And I know when I first uh, started learning more about drug overdoses and the data around it, I naively assumed that uh, with each kind of overdose, there would be this very deep full panel of drug testing done. But it seems the reality of how granular that data is in terms of figuring out the the amount of each substance, not just the presence of a substance, uh, that, that may be more limited than some people imagine. Would you mind just providing a little more color about the realities of that? Yeah, sure. Well, the second half you said is absolutely true. It's cheaper to test for the presence of a substance than to test for the amount of it. And so that comes into play with things like testing samples of the drug as opposed to um, sample of a body fluid from somebody who's died. But yeah, you know, it costs more money to test for more drugs and fewer drugs. So if it's it, before there was a recognition of the public health crisis, there are a lot of places just didn't bother testing for it. Fentanyl had mostly not been around from 2006 on. Um, so yeah, I, I, there's also like a technological sophistication dimension. You're testing for something that's there in very small amounts. So some jurisdictions just have better facilities and better trained staff. And there's also the complexity that there's very often multiple drugs present. Uh, in fact, it's, it's kind of uncommon that you end up with a person who's died and they have only one substance in their body. So it's, uh, I don't want to think of it as like a, a scandal that somebody has been incompetent. I don't want to be critical in that sense, but it is certainly a, uh, a limitation and a challenge that even the overdoses are uh, trickier to count. Well, and I guess the other thing to say is that there is this family of opioids. When you're looking at cocaine, you're looking at cocaine, or I suppose technically it's metabolite. But with opioids, it's a large class of, of chemicals. That's harder. And just wondering how much of the limitation there is from a general technology perspective in terms of it's just tough to detect a new analog because no one's ever tested for it before uh, versus how much of it is just a matter of budgets and needing to find the money for expensive equipment? Oh, I mean, I think that if 
if every medical examiner were unconstrained budget wise, mostly we would be able to detect it. Um, so I think it's primarily resources. And, and you can probably do some back down with a calculation that says, geez, with this many tens of thousands of people dying, isn't it worth our spending more taxpayer dollars to improve our data systems? And that's almost sure to be true, but the real world of budgeting is more complicated than that. The medical examiner has whatever budget the medical examiner has, and they uh, they don't get paid by anybody for putting out sort of more useful statistics for tracking the opioid crisis. So I I, I think it it is quote unquote just a resource issue, but I don't really like the word just there. I think that still is a, a real challenge. Now shifting to the overall current landscape of synthetic opioid usage in the U.S., do you mind just talking about what are some of the fentanyl and some of its analogs that are prevalent on the market? Well, um, fentanyl is often best really appended with an S. There's a whole set of fentanyls, and then there are some other analogs that aren't fentanyls. And you mentioned carfentanil, which is perhaps the most important of them, caused a lot of deaths in Ohio in 18, I think. It was 2018. It's a fluid situation. At one point, it looked like the trend in the market was a proliferation of these different analogs. Then it seems like there's a bit of a retreat from that. We have two uncertainties or, or things we wonder about. One is that China did, with cajoling from the international community in the United States, impose some restrictions on production of these chemicals. And yeah, if you ask five experts, you get 11 opinions on whether or not China can or would or would in a sustained way care to uh, truly crack down on these substances production. And then you could ask the same five experts and get 11 more opinions on how easy it is for that industry that then shift to India or someplace else. But it is certainly possible that the retreat reflects the action of the Chinese government to try to suppress and to close some of the loopholes. Uh, against these analogs. I don't know how to be definitive about that. There are smart people who think China gets credit. There are smart people who think it doesn't. Then likewise, there's a lot of discussion and of course no agreement on the extent to which the COVID-19 phenomenon has interrupted the flow of precursors and chemicals because a lot of the production was in uh, Hubei, which, you know, exactly where things were shut down and shut down in a, an even stricter way than shutdowns happen in the United States. There are journalistic accounts that this has caused uh, real contraction and shortage. I think that is possible, but I also know that over the last 30 years, there have been many instances in which journalists have written stories that embrace and celebrate such an ironic uh, theme, even when it turns out to be 
minor in, in 2020 hindsight. So that's a pretty evasive answer. And that's because I think we just don't know yet. Often we don't really know what's going on in drug markets until five or 10 years later. And I know when you mentioned the, the COVID-19 and some of the stories about the supplies and how they've been affected, uh, I did a bonus episode kind of covering just what I could find in the news. And after reading those articles, I was wondering, you know, similar to, as you mentioned, after the Taliban disruption in 2001, isn't it likely that these large international organizations have some kind of a store of a supply to weather minor disruptions in the market, not to pretend that COVID is a minor one, but, you know, at least to weather a month or two time-wise, irrespective of how big of a global disruption is actually happening. Yeah. Um, and the United Nations just put out a, a really nice bulletin on the on this topic the last week or two. So, I, I mean, I think... I could play devil's advocate with any particular position here, and I just mostly want to stress, I don't know. But here's an argument why COVID, why the presence of inventories might not stop COVID as much, and that is that um, the Afghan event was definitely a reduction in production, but no interdiction to the distribution. And so if you have inventory and you can still distribute, you can get the product to market. The claim is that not only has COVID maybe stopped production of the particular precursor in that particular place, but it's kind of frozen a lot of the ability to move stuff around because contraband is very often moved within the camouflage of general commerce. And so as general commerce grinds to a stop, you no longer have that flow to hide within. I'll just say again, well, I think we'll know more in five years. Are there any distinct geographic patterns in terms of certain regions consuming certain types of fentanyls or other analogs? Oh, hugely. Uh, but I wouldn't stress primarily are they using fentanyl as opposed to a different analog. There's some of that. Like I said, Ohio turned out to be the epicenter of a carfentanyl epidemic. I think the really big story is that fentanyls or new synthetic opioids, uh, novel synthetic opioids overall, have uh, predominantly been a Northeast and Midwest phenomenon. They absolutely were... Uh, popping up in the news in places like San Francisco, at least before COVID. But, and they were growing fast, but they were growing fast from a much lower base. The geographic spread, and that was in the United States, was sort of the East. Canada's the opposite. Uh, the, the, they hit Vancouver and British Columbia first and hardest, and substantially hit Alberta, one province to the East, Certainly some in Toronto, but uh, yeah, it's a little bit weird. It tends to be Western Canada and Eastern United States. And if it was hard to explain why it was Eastern United States, it's even harder to explain why it's Eastern United States and Western Canada. So it's a good puzzle. Is there any evidence of fentanyl being mixed with other drugs? I know you mentioned initially it was emerging mixed with heroin. Is there still that mixing with either, either opioids or with other substances overall? I mean, I, unambiguously, not only heroin, but also counterfeit prescription opioids. For sure, that happens. You just see that on the seizure statistics a lot. 
it certainly has been mixed in with cocaine, but there is a real question about how common that is. Unambiguously, there are a lot of people who are dying with both cocaine and fentanyl in their body. In fact, it's something like half of all people who die with cocaine in their body also have fentanyl in their body. And essentially, 100% of the increase in cocaine-related deaths can be attributed to the cocaine and fentanyl. But, there, but, the, but the fact that both chemicals are in the same person's body doesn't tell you whether or not they were in the same bag, right? So one story is the cocaine user bought cocaine, it was adulterated with fentanyl, they didn't know about it, they were opioid naive, they overdosed. That, that, that could happen, but that almost certainly it happens at least some. But, but a different story is the cocaine user was trying to speedball, is the jargon for it. So they wanted to use cocaine, but they also wanted to use an opioid. And they bought a bag of opioids, maybe thinking it was heroin, and there was fentanyl mixed in heroin. Then they took both bags, the bag that is cocaine with no fentanyl, and the bag that was the opioid with fentanyl. And that's how there's fentanyl in the body of the person who dies also with cocaine. And uh, just the nature of things right now, it's really hard to know the relative magnitude of those two different stories. So it's definitely showing up helping with the killing of people who are using cocaine. But was it in the cocaine bag commonly? Um, that's not entirely clear yet. And is there any evidence when it comes to fentanyl being mixed with cocaine uh, or fentanyl being mixed with potentially other non-opioid prescription drugs? Uh, are there any clearer signs of how that might be unintentional? Have there been direct uh, kind of uh, cases found or anything like that where there could be cross-contamination? Well, yeah, yeah. So, the, you know, the cross-contamination story is, a, is another story. I'm glad you're pointing us to that because like another hypothesis is that the fentanyl was in the cocaine, but not because the dealer wanted to put fentanyl in the cocaine, but because they had used a particular table or chopping board to mix fentanyl into heroin, and they didn't practice good hygiene and clean effectively. And then they are cutting some cocaine and with instruments are on the same table and the fentanyl gets in that way. Um, so yes, there are even more stories about how this could be happening. Um, I'm glad you put that on the table. You, you alluded to this earlier on, but just to cover in a little more depth, when it comes to the benefits of synthetic opioids for the manufacturers and traffickers themselves, how big of a price differential is it just given the overall size of the markets? Well, it's like 100 to 1 per morphine equivalent dose. So if you think about it from the perspective of the wholesaler, you can like cut your cost of raw materials by 99%. So at that level, it's huge. What maybe makes it less influential than that calculation suggests is that from the wholesale level down to the street, there's a lot of cost for labor of distributing, of connecting the wholesale supply to the user. And it may be that those labor costs don't change very much, even if the materials cost of the stuff that they're distributing 
doesn't change. So w- whether the bag was 200 milligrams of heroin or 100 milligrams of heroin and two milligrams of fentanyl, that doesn't really change much. It doesn't change the weight in a way that makes any difference to how strong you have to be to move it around or how hard it is to hide in your pocket. It doesn't change the number of hours that somebody is uh, busy trying to connect with the customer. So the impact on retail price, we don't know. There's division in the expert community. One story is this is going to put substantial downward pressure on retail prices. Another story is not, not, not so much. One element that I found very interesting when reading the report that I hadn't uh, really realized was sort of the difference in marketing in terms of substance and geography, whereas some places were sort of, uh, I don't know if I want to say embracing, but they were being very transparent about which specific analogs or fentanyls might be found or being sold uh, versus in some areas, there was a lot of uncertainty as to whether or not someone is getting a pure substance Can you just comment a little bit on how that's playing out in the U.S.? Sure. I mean, there's two components of that. One is sort of changes over time. In in a number of markets, Vancouver, New Hampshire would be examples, there was heroin, and then there was heroin adulterated, fentanyl or other synthetic opioids, and then eventually they left the heroin out, and, and you're pretty much just buying synthetic opioids. Early in that process, the user might have thought they were buying just heroin, and the seller might have even thought they were selling just heroin, for that matter, the retail seller. But a year or two later, when heroin's no longer in the market at all, people have kind of caught on. Okay, this bag of opioids um, is is probably synthetic opioids. So there's a change over time. Um, But then there's also this question of uh, testing and the availability of tests strips or other testing services like British Columbia tends to be aggressive in this regard and trying to empower users in particular in some cases even the sellers to know what is in the bag and that approach exists in some places in the United States but is not as common as it is in British Columbia Um, and some markets, they sort of informally believe they can tell. I've read these ethnographic reports where they interview users who claim that there's a different color or there's a different taste or it feels different when they take it. And they kind of believe that they can tell whether or not it was a heroin bag or whether it was mostly a fentanyl bag. I I honestly don't know whether or not users' judgments in that regard are very reliable. And do you know how that trend might be similar or different when looking at uh, when looking internationally, specifically to Europe? Mostly Europe has not yet been hit hard by fentanyl, except for Estonia and except for these diverted medical forms of fentanyl. And often when it's a diverted medical fentanyl, you do know that it's fentanyl because it's like, okay, there's a pain patch and it says right on it what, what the patch is. Most of Europe does not yet have a lot of fentanyl in its black markets. Um, Estonia does. I believe Latvia now does. I don't know why that wouldn't extend over time. But one of the other things that my colleagues and I don't know is how fast that will happen. So one story is fentanyl is cheaper. It's going to take over. That's just economics. Another story is 
historically, usually when a new drug penetrates, it's when the old drug had its supply disrupted. So unless and until there's a disruption to the heroin supply for Europe, fentanyl may remain on the margins. Hate to say it again, but no more in five or 10 years. It's a lot easier to think about scenarios that could happen than it is to know for sure what is going to happen. If you had to come up with a few scenarios or a specific scenario that you think is most likely of how fentanyl markets might change at a high level, how do you see that playing out in the coming, say, five to 10 years? I mean, I bet on cost efficiency in the long run. That's maybe just part of my general worldview and personality. Uh, I, I think you know, economics wins in the long run. You said five to 10. If you had meet at 10 to 15, I'd be even a little more confident in, in saying that. What I don't know is there, there are different versions of that. One is fentanyl penetrates and even displaces heroin, full stop. Another is that it, it sort of penetrates and subverts the prescription opioid market, which could be in funny ways. So it's easy to put fentanyl into counterfeit pills. But part of the appeal of the counterfeit pills was the belief that they were a more reliable dose than heroin. Once the counterfeit pills get known by the users as being just as risky as the heroin, then maybe they kind of have a lemons problem in the acrolov sense. And then there's this the mixing with cocaine that we talked about earlier, or methamphetamine. And as we also talked about earlier, there's this different distribution model. And there's separately the question of what's the most likely scenario for the diffusion of the distribution model of internet sales. Now, I am one of the pessimists. I worry that the cost economies will trump in the long run. And this problem that has primarily been half of North America is going to eventually become a problem for much of the world. Or are there any reasons to believe in general uh, and be hopeful for the idea of fentanyl supplies decreasing? Not really. I mean, like one story where a drug that's dangerous can decrease is the users start to say, I don't want it. And David Musto, I think, gets credit for advancing the story and says that's essentially why the cocaine epidemic from end of the 19th century, early 20th century was self-limiting. Users eventually learned this is actually quite dangerous, and then the next generation avoids it. But, but fentanyl is still not primarily something people are asking for by name. Its popularity and its spread is driven by the dealers. So you don't even have that possible break. So um, I, I said, I'm, I am pessimistic. I fear that fentanyl is here to stay and that it will tend to spread. The only general caveat I put on that is drug markets do not always behave in the way that we expect them to. So I very much hope that I am wrong. I very much hope that I am surprised. I would put my odds on it being around for a while. And I wanted to take a quick aside before we wrap up, because I know you were involved in advising some opium eradication efforts in the mid-2000s. I was just hoping you could share a little bit about uh, kind of what, what the circumstances were and what some of the learnings were. Yeah, I'm not sure. It might be too grand to say it the way that you did, but I think what you're referring to is, along with Mark Kleiman and a couple other colleagues, we did some analyses of 
to the State Department about how efforts in Afghanistan would affect who made how much money. And uh, the short version of that is that the elasticity of demand for the sellers of opium or heroin uh, at the level of warlords in Afghanistan, that elasticity demand was really, really low because that is the reflected elasticity demand that starts on the streets of Europe, say, and gets reflected up the supply chain. But because there are very large increases in price as it moves down the distribution chain, even if the elasticity of demand were, say, minus 0.75 on the streets of Berlin, that translates to a super low elasticity of demand for the people exporting it from Afghanistan. And so if you squeeze supply in Afghanistan, you're going to actually increase the revenues of those warlords because the yeah, because of the elasticity of demand. So it's sort of sort of perverse in that regard. Getting rid of some of their crop might make them richer. And that's not entirely strange if you grew up in the Midwest and you know that on a year, in a year in which there's a bumper crop of corn, the corn farmers don't make as much money. And in a year when there's a bad corn crop, the corn farmers can make more money. So in some sense, it's not really a big surprise when you say at that level, opium is just a processed agricultural product with a low elasticity of demand. Got it. And to end on a positive note, are there any specific organizations or individuals that you'd want to highlight who you think are doing good work uh, in the area of drug research and understanding overall? Oh, well, I'm 100% biased, but I think RAND's Drug Policy Research Center is a gem, and I am extremely proud and privileged to have been affiliated with it for getting on to three decades now. I love RAND's absolute commitment to objectivity and trying to call them as they see them, or we see them, depending on whether I think of myself as, as in RAND or not. I, I, I still work with them. Um, and I also absolutely respect the empirical and analytic approach that RAND takes as opposed to an ideological approach. But as I said, I'm completely biased because I work with RAND and uh, many of my friends are in RAND. Yep, that would be my uh, one that I would mention. The International Society for the Study of Drug Policy has also created a community of scholarship around this topic. That has been a, another big contribution to advancing science in Syria. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. The History of Drugs and Society is written and produced by me, Eugene Leventhal. Credits to Blue Dot Sessions on the music and BBC Sound Effects, Splice Sound, and Kyle's for the free audio. Feel free to reach out on Twitter, at Drugs History, or over email, History of DIS, that's History of Drugs and Society, History of DIS at gmail.com. I'm going to add a link to the citations in the show notes. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend and rate on iTunes. Be well, and speak soon.